Sylvia Plath's B sequence has been described by Jessica Lewis Luck as a kind of scientific experiment. In her phrase, the poems are lyric laboratories. Plath came to view the black, intractable mind of the swarm as an intriguing model for consciousness, writing these poems at breakneck speed on the back of drafts of her novel, The Bell Jar. Lewis Luck writes that, I was struck while reading Otto Plath's Bumblebees and Their Ways by the number of times he mentions taking bees and pieces of hives and putting them in glass jars to study. Certainly, his daughter must have been conscious of her parallel action in writing the bee poems on the bell jar, a bell jar containing and facilitating her experimental visions and revisions. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about the poem The Swarm by Sylvia Plath. In the space of a week in October 1962, Plath wrote the five poems referred to as her bee sequence. The Bee Meeting, The Arrival of the Bee Box, Stings, The Swarm, and Wintering. Plath had kept bees at Court Green that summer, which was the same summer her marriage fell dramatically apart. In October, Plath turned 30 and was facing an uncertain future with her two young children. And yet, despite these dreadful and traumatic circumstances, she pulled off what must be one of the most extraordinary creative bursts in poetic record. Over the month, she produced almost a poem a day, including some of her best known, Ariel, Daddy, Fever 103, Lady Lazarus, Poppies in October, The Jailer, and her B sequence. The swarm begins when the narrator hears somebody shooting at something in our town. Across 12 stanzas, we see that a swarm of bees has escaped in the Sunday street and is being shot at. Throughout the poem, Plath addresses Napoleon, referring to his character and his campaigns, the territories of which also suggest the more recent European wars. For me, there's something a bit less immediate about this poem than the last one we discussed, Electra on Azalea Path. Like the sound of distant shooting, the poem seems to me just at a remove, hard to catch. It's dull, pom-pom, a rhythm that's just out of hearing. From its unusually flat, prosy opening line, somebody is shooting at something in our town, there seems to be something impersonal about the poem, an off-handedness, stabbed or stung with sudden, violent and strange images. And one reason it feels less immediate when compared to Electra or any of the other poems in the B sequence is that the narrator is not personalised. Unlike in the rest of the B sequence, it never places itself within the story, never calls itself I. As a consequence, the narrator is hard to pin down, like the black, intractable mind of the swarm itself. The other aspect of the swarm that sets it apart from the rest of the B sequence is its historical focus. Plath was interviewed around this time by Peter Orr at the BBC, who asked Plath whether she had a great and keen sense of the historic. I am not a historian, Plath replied, but I find myself being more and more fascinated by history, and now I find myself reading more and more about history. I am very interested in Napoleon at the present, I'm very interested in battles, in wars, in Gallipoli, the First World War, and so on. And I think that as I age, I am becoming more and more historical. That's one of those really sad quotes, I find. Not just the uh, bleakness of her saying, I am becoming more and more historical, so close to her death. But the never-to-be-written work that that conjures up. The perhaps a plath historical novel, or more poems that look to history, like this one does which in itself gives the swarm a particular preciousness, standing as the start of a new stylistic direction that Plath wouldn't have time to go down. 
Addressing what sets the swarm apart from the herd, Ellen Sarrow has written, The swarm issues from the impulse toward history, yet its composition among the poems of the bee sequence, which reject male dominion and cultivate female authority, and its relation to them through imagery and through antagonism to an overwhelming, if here defeated, male figure, afford this poem a balance between myth and history that may be unique among Sylvia Plath's poems. As always on these poetry episodes, I'll be going through the poem in full. There are 12 stanzas this time, so I'm going to do three at a time. And in between those sections of, of three stanzas, I'll be joined once again by Peter K. Steinberg. If you've listened to my episode on Electra, you'll know that Peter is a legend. I'm cautious to say Colossus amongst uh, uh, in Plath studies. He has written a book on Plath, uh, published in the Great Writers series, co-authored These Ghostly Archives with Gail Crowther. Um, he's also the co-editor with Karen V. Kukil of the uh, two-volume Letters of Sylvia Plath and is the sole editor of the forthcoming Complete Prose of Sylvia Plath due out next year. Peter also runs an invaluable website for Plath fans and uh, scholars and podcasters, I should say, um, called Sylvia Plath Info, which I'll link below. Last time, when we discussed Electra on Azalea Path, we focused mainly on Peter's biographical work on Plath, his work with the letters, and his also his work running tours around uh, Winthrop, where Plath lived, which was particularly relevant to that poem. Today, we're going to be referring more to Peter's work on Asia Wevel. Along with Julie Goodspeed Chadwick, Peter has co-edited the collected writings of Asia Wevel. Wevel was a prolific letter writer, a poet, and a translator. And just as Hughes and the memory of Plath has a strong influence on uh, Wevel's writing, Peter has a suspicion that Wevel has a strong bearing on today's poem. So I began by asking Peter what made him choose as his uh, second poem to talk about The Swarm. So I, um, every year I read basically all of Plath's poetry. And, and uh, when I was reading The Swarm in uh, the Winter Trees collection, late last year. Um, it was right around the time that my book came out, the one I co-edited with Julie Goodspeed Chadwick, uh, The Collected Writings of Assie Webble. And so I had Assie Webble on my mind, uh, as well as Julie's previous work, claiming Assie Webble. And when I was reading the poem, some images in the poem really s- struck me as being potentially about Assie Webble. When I, when, I, when I read the poem, I, I kind of read it several times, and I've, I've, I've convinced myself it's kind of a quasi-Asiawevel poem, not one to the same extent as words heard by accident over the phone, burning the letters, the fearful, childless woman, or the mutic mannequins, but um, just having elements of Asia in it. And... The other thing about this poem is Plath was tentative about its inclusion in the B sequence. It, it is one of the five B poems that she wrote in October of 62. Um, but in her table of contents for Ariel, uh, at the end of her, her order, um, the swarm is in parentheses, which is her shorthand code for removal or deliberation about removal. So, and I thought that I thought that that demarcation of it as potentially being removed could also be because she's in the middle of this triumphant sequence of poems where she has a self to recover, a queen, 
Um, and then by the end of wintering, the bees are flying, they taste the spring, there is this new life, Vita Nova. And, 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 but there's the swarm, which is just squarely in the way. And, <laughs> and, and I mean that, I guess, literally and figuratively, but, but if it is a kind of an Asiwevel poem, I don't think Plath would have wanted to have included it in that sequence because this is a woman who through her actions um, broke up her marriage and, and, and sort of led her down, you know, the dark path that she had been for the previous months. Um, so, so that's some of the reason why I thought um, it might be nice to discuss this poem because it's not that, it, it, you know, it's well known, but it isn't as discussed as some of the other few poems like Wintering or Stings. Okay, so our first section of the poem is going to be the first three stanzas and then the first line of the fourth, just so we can finish a sentence. Somebody is shooting at something in our town, a dull pom-pom in the Sunday street. Jealousy can open the blood, it can make black roses. Who are they shooting at? It is you the knives are out for, at Waterloo, Waterloo, Napoleon. The hump of Elba on your short back, and the snow marshalling its brilliant cutlery. Mass after mass, saying shh, shh. These are chess people you play with, still figures of ivory. The mud squirms with throats, stepping stones for French boot soles. The gilt and pink domes of Russia melt and float off in the furnace of greed. Slightly inauspicious start, I think. The vagueness, cumbersomeness and assonance of that opening line, somebody is shooting at something in our town. Uh, gives it the sense of being unnervingly not bothered about um, nearby violence or gunfire. A dull pom-pom in the Sunday street. It's a Sunday, meaning it's a very inappropriate day um, for gunfire. Um, pom is a rather prim sort of gunshot, isn't it? All frills, pom-pom, like, a, like an elaborate march. We get the word pom-pom from the French, pom-pom, meaning decorative ball of string or ribbon for the kind that were worn on the hats of Napoleon's soldiers. Pom-pom pulses throughout the poem, one of its many repetitions, giving the, giving the whole poem a kind of heartbeat. Um, speaking of which, the next line, jealousy can open the blood, it can make black roses. Love that. We have no idea yet who is jealous or why the narrator has brought jealousy up. Um, but it's just wonderful, this, a gruesome bit of, uh, of doubling. Um, so you open the blood as in get shot and make black roses. You can see a dark wound pooling blood. Um, but it also sounds like something creative and transformative. Open the blood as in innovate or invigorate the blood. Um, and make black roses, make something that doesn't exist within nature. In other words, make art. Interesting that while we see seem a world away from um, Electron Azalea Path, we have, again, artificial flowers like the plastic evergreens of that poem, both of which stand in a rather ambivalent way for, for something that is simultaneously artistically alive, but practically dead, in reality dead. Who are they shooting at? It is you the knives are out for, at Waterloo, Waterloo Napoleon, the hump of Elba on your short back, and the snow marshalling its brilliant cutlery, mass after mass, saying shh. Knives, although we haven't seen the titular swarm yet, um, we... we Having read the title and knowing where the poem's going, we, we have stings in our head. But the knives also sort of shrink the uh, the soldiers down, something that we'll see happen throughout the poem. 
Waterloo, Waterloo, another repetition. Waterloo, of course, the site of Napoleon's downfall. The hump of Elba on your short back. Elba is the island Napoleon was forced into exile to before he made his uh, comeback to reclaim his empire. Uh, so his, his first exile. I think the hump of Elba means more the ignominy of Elba, the the shame of, of having to, going from emperor of all Europe to emperor of an island of a few thousand. So it's hump like a chip on the shoulder rather than an actual hump. Napoleon might be shorthand for short, famously, but I don't think it was widely suggested he had a hump as well. Um, although the painting of him crossing the Alps with that red cloak washing behind his back that could be cunningly disguising a hump and the snow marshalling its brilliant cutlery bringing to mind napoleon's famous and disastrous russia campaign the weapons of his enemy uh, waiting in the snow calling the weapons cutlery miniaturizes the the image we see masses of them saying shh, shh as in silencing him given that we've heard it's a sunday mass also sounds you know like the liturgical mass Napoleon had conquered the Papal States, antagonised the Catholics by imprisoning their Pope. So mass after mass might give us the sense of, um, you know, a faith turned against him and praying against him. Uh, he was eventually uh, excommunicated. These are chess people you play with, still figures of ivory. The mud squirms with throats, stepping stones for French boot soles. Chess people, miniature again. These aren't real people to Napoleon, they're just pieces. Uh, Napoleon was described as an enthusiastic but undistinguished player of chess. There are several anecdotes of him being too impatient to be more than a third-rate chess player. In fact, the Napoleon opening is named after him, and it is a reckless and weak opening, in which, which in uh, chess language, this is rather tantalising, involves the premature development of the queen. Um, that's very uh, tempting for us uh, and our swarm of bees. Uh, obviously, the rest of the bee sequence is much more focused on on queen bees. Uh, there isn't really a queen in this poem or, or explicitly a queen. But I'm not sure if there is any connection there. And I don't uh, know enough about chess, really, to go down that road. Mud squirms with throats. So throats being stepped on more language of, of silencing. Guilt and pink domes of Russia melt and float off in the furnace of greed. Napoleon's dream of conquering Russia is dissipating after his reckless failed campaign. Presumably also a reference to the fire of Moscow. When Napoleon reached Moscow in 1812, he found it abandoned and on fire. So he literally saw his objective go up in smoke. The gilt and pink domes that he dreamt about kind of were melting and, and floating off. Right, we'll pick up here in the next section. As you can see, there's there's no actual bees yet. Um, so you can see why it has this kind of outsider status in the bee sequence. Perhaps why Plath hesitated about whether uh, she was going to include it in the other poems, bee poems in Ariel. Ellen Sarrow has written, although connected by association to the other bee poems, this one mirrored different, that is, historical concerns. But as my guest Peter suggests, we've already heard a few clues that indicate that the poem's concerns are more than historical. Yeah, so the phone call was in um, July of 62, and, you know, there was this sort of frantic period for several weeks where Hughes was there or not there, and the mother was, of course, there for a time, and then she got these mysterious flus, and she lost weight, and Hughes was largely not there, um, but he would come back on weekends, and they took this disastrous trip to Ireland in early September and she came back alone. 
And then uh, at the time, Hughes kind of disappeared from Ireland, but he ended up going to Spain with Assey Wevel for a, a spell. But when Plath was writing these B poems, if my memory is correct, uh, Ted Hughes was physically located in Court Green for the time, and she ended up booting him out a few days later. I was just looking, because um, you know, I knew we were going to talk about this, I was looking at a letter that Plath wrote to Dr. Boyshire on the September 29th, 1962, which uh, I believe she wrote for a fatherless son on that day. And it was a day before she wrote a birthday present. But she writes, I climbed in his study out of sheer homesickness to read his writing, lacking letters, and found them sheafs of passionate love poems to this woman, this one woman to whom he has been growing more and more faithful, describing their orgasms, her ivory body, her smell, her beauty, saying, excuse me, saying in a world of beauties, he married a hag, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's, it's that excerpt from the letter that, that sort of recalled to me a draft of a poem that Ted Hughes wrote called Only Your Ivory Body, which is in typescript at uh, Emory University. And it just begins, only your ivory body, my Eden, a wood without fox, without doves, without mosses, and so on. But it's that word ivory that kind of I was, I was in, in tune with when I was reading The Swarm, because in, in stanza, stanza three, she says, shh, which is kind of a play on Asia, and it, which is also in, um, a hiss from words heard by accident over the phone. Shh, these are mm. chess people you play with, the still figures of ivory. Okay, so, and when I got, and then later on, there's, uh, I mean, this is obviously a poem about Napoleon and, um, and, and, and what he was trying to do, but, but I think there are layers to it that sort of go a little bit deeper than that, sort of bring in a biographical kind of rendering, because there's mention of Russia, and as he is, of course, of Russian descent. Earlier in the second stanza, it begins, it is you, the knives are out for it, Waterloo, Waterloo, Napoleon. There is, there is a story about David Wevel going to Waterloo Station with a knife to try to attack Ted Hughes at one point. Waterloo Station being at the time, I believe, the, the, where the, the train to and from North Taunton started and stopped. So, um, you know, sort of all these things jumped out at me when I was reading the poem. So it's, it's not totally about Asu Wevel, but I do think it is somewhat about Asu Wevel. And there's also, um, you know, in the poem, it's obviously a B poem. Um, and the ending of Ted Hughes's Only Your Ivory Body, um, it goes, new flowers would stir God like a hungry bee and your ivory body. So this is a poem that Plath read, you know, at some point in September of 62. And then, uh, I can't do the math, but maybe eight or nine days later, she launches in on the, these, these bee poems. And they, of course, originated several months earlier she and Hughes became beekeepers in North Totten. Um, so, and her father was, of course, a beekeeper, and, and he wrote Bumblebees in Their Ways. So there's just sort of this confluence of, of, of bees um, that, that, that goes into, um, in, into the writing of those, po those poems. The gilt and pink domes of Russia melt and float off in the furnace of greed. 
Clouds, clouds. So the swarm balls and deserts 70 feet up in a black pine tree. It must be shot down. Pom, pom. So dumb it thinks bullets are thunder. It thinks they are the voice of God, condoning the beak, the claw, the grin of the dog, yellow haunched, a pack dog, grinning over its bone of ivory, like the pack, the pack, like everybody. The bees have got so far, 70 feet high, Russia, Poland, and Germany. The mild hills, the same old magenta fields, shrunk to a penny, spun into a river, the river crossed. Okay, so we've already talked about the first bit. We'll leave the gilt and pink domes. They float off and turn into these clouds, clouds. So the swarm balls and deserts 70 feet up in a black pine tree. I love the elemental transition going on here. The snow that masses, then melts, then floats off, forming clouds, and the clouds turn finally into a swarm. The way the ideas just travel and transform so elegantly as, as Plath marches on. Deserting 70 feet up a pine tree, Napoleon's forces deserting, and um, he certainly did have deserters from the from the Grand Army in Russia. I think I think also it's not necessarily specifically the deserters, but also just his uh, losing losing his his army. His I think I think he lost over half a million soldiers in Russia. Um, I think the idea of that lost power is 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 what we're meant to be thinking of. The swarm is a sort of raw power, uncommanded. It w once was, once did have a leader. It once was hived, and now it's been let loose. Plath would have known that bees were Napoleon's personal emblem, taken from the initial of his surname. As a result, golden bees became a symbol associated with French imperial might. It must be shot down, pom, pom, so dumb it thinks bullets are thunder. So it represents a threat, this loose ball of power, despite, or perhaps because it's so dumb. Dumb as a crowd, it doesn't understand what bullets are, it thinks they might be thunder, or the voice of God. Condoning the beak, the claw, the grin of the dog, yellow haunched, a pack dog, grinning over its bone of ivory, like the pack, the pack, like everybody. It takes the bullets as divine endorsement of more violence and disorder. The black pine tree might stand as a, as a representation of the death of natural order, literally a dead end. Yellow haunched, sort of a mangy sounding dog, and bone of ivory calling back to the chess pieces, and as Peter suggests, possibly a different kind of dog slavering over a different kind of conquest. Um, and just on that divorce angle, it's worth mentioning that Plath had recently read and reviewed a book by Hubert Cole on Josephine Napoleon. Josephine was loyal to Napoleon despite their notorious divorce, and through, as Plath noted, the drafty scabrous damps of Navarre, where um, Josephine was left. Plath, of course, endured similar conditions in, in the brutal winter of 1962 and 63 after her divorce and left alone. As a divorce gift, Napoleon uh, gave Josephine an ornate set of tableware, um, perhaps another way of, of reading brilliantly cutler brilliant cutlery being marshalled in the previous section. The bees have got so far, 70 feet high, Russia, Poland and Germany. I was casting around for why 70 feet, since Plath says it twice, and um, the only thing I came up with was the fountain, uh, the Fontaine du Palmier, or the Fontaine de la Victoire, which is around 70 feet tall, depending on where you look. Um, there, there was somewhere, I think Wikipedia lists it at 59 feet, and then various Napoleon websites list it as 70 feet. Um, 
it, it, this is a, a sort of pillar and fountain that celebrates the victories of Napoleon. It's in the Place de Châtelet, which was actually quite close to where Plath stayed in Paris in 1956. The decorations on it celebrate Napoleon's victories in Poland and Germany, and it is distinctively banded uh, with bronze, like a bee. Mentioning those three countries in particular, Russia, Poland and Germany, without any others in which Napoleon had famous victories, like Italy, for example, indicates a World War II resonance. They are countries that are all um, infamously connected to concentration camps. The horror of the swarm brings to mind the, the horror of unthinkable numbers, a kind of loss of scale, which we hear again in the next bit. The mild hills, the same old magenta fields, shrunk to a penny, spun into a river, the river crossed. So great distances are nothing to numbers as strong as this. It's like Napoleon is looking over a campaign map, you know, pushing cheese, uh, chess pieces around on it. Into a river, the river crossed. The repetitions help to make a toy of the river. You know, no details are given to it. We don't see it in any depth. To say it is to own it. You've said it and you've crossed it. It's, you bring up the river, the river's done. As Karen Ford has written about the repetitions in this poem, the poem employs excess as if to steel itself against its own revelations. Now, following the earlier possible reference to the fire of Moscow, this line might also be moving us chronologically along the course of Napoleon's retreat back towards Poland, during which he made the fateful costly cro uh, crossing of the Berezina River. Crossing the river spun from a penny gives the sense of crossing palms with silver, and this river um, Napoleon certainly paid heavily for. He was attacked on both banks by, by the Russians, and he lost a lot more men. So shrinking may be the, the continu continuation of the domes melting and floating off, the ending of Napoleon's dream. Um, the riches, the ton of honey that he might have claimed is just spun to a penny. But there's also that sense of it just being a, a real stark expression of the numbers we're dealing with here and the scale. Again, I just love Plath's technique, the smoothness of that transition from fields shrinking to a penny, spinning a penny so it becomes a silver blur, simulating the water of a river, the river crossed. You'd written somewhere, I think this is on your uh, website, that w one of the richest intertextual readings across Plath's letters, journals and poetry, um, to your mind, was was her writing on Becoming a Beekeeper. Mm -hmm. um, what, what did it mean to her? And when did she take up beekeeping herself? Yeah, um, she took it up in June of 62. You know, the North Taunton community was pretty close and Plath had interactions with many people who were on this sort of the part of this beekeeping community, her midwife, uh, this woman, Nancy Axworthy, who lived nearby, and Susan O'Neill Road, uh, who became her nanny, but her, her mother, Nancy, Jenkins lived in Bellstone, a nearby town to North Totten. And it's, it just became this sort of thing that they got invited to down by the River Taw. And um, they participated in its bee meeting. And she writes about it beautifully in her journals. And thank God we have these sort of journals for this period because um, there's, there's little mention of it in her letters, but it's really developed in her journals. And um, when you, look at, when you look at some of Plath's writings, like, uh, say, in Plaster, the poem in Plaster, which she wrote in March of 1961, it, it came about because she saw people in Plaster cast when she was having her appendix out. But Plath herself was in Plaster uh, in the winter of 1953 when she broke her leg skiing. So um, 
you know, that was 1953 to 1961. There's kind of like this eight year period of, of poetic gestation before she can use it as the subject of a poem. But by the time you get to this period in 1962, that sort of gestation period is condensed. She has an experience. She writes about it in her journals or maybe even in some letters. And then it's almost immediately on tap for her as a subject of poems. Um, you see it as soon as words heard by accident over the phone, which took place in, you know, the, the phone conversation took place in July and she wrote a poem almost immediately after it. But then these, these B poems did take several months to uh, come about. Um, and, and they came about in, at, at sort of at the right time for her. She, she started this um, heavy production period, you know, in late September with For Her Fatherless Son and a Birthday Present. And then she moves through The Detective, The Courage of Shutting Up, and then into the B poems. And as she's doing this in October, she, um, the detective is sort of like, it, sort of, she becomes a detective. She's, she's making an inquiry into what happened to herself. And then she finds herself and then you get the courage of shutting up and, and then the bee poems where she really discovers herself through the image of the bees and the queen bee. And then she rips apart daddy. She rips apart Medusa. And so she's kind of like checking off all these sort of uh, personal historic demons. Um, and then sort of, um, she writes Lesbos, which is kind of about uh, some other friends that she, you know, she's just sort of casting them off. And as she's doing this, um, you can you see it when you read the collected poems, when you read them in order. It's a little it's a little out of context in some senses. If you get my drift, if you read it in Ariel, the restored edition, because that is that's a, a very carefully constructive narrative of of her sort of own sort of poetic self-discovery. But when you read them in the order in which they were actually written, they tell a very different story. Uh, Ariel, her Ariel ends with the discovery of herself, but in the actual creation in that October of 1962, that happens first. You know, it, it happens mm. in the first part of the month and then she just moves in into these other subjects as she is creating her, her sort of new person, be it the, her, her actual self or her, her poetic persona. So here's the next section of three stanzas. The bees argue in their black ball, a flying hedgehog all prickles. The man with grey hands stands under the honeycomb of their dream, the hived station, where trains faithful to their steel arcs leave and arrive, and there is no end to the country. Pom, pom, they fall dismembered to a tod of ivy. So much for the charioteers, the outriders, the grand army, a red tatter, Napoleon. The last badge of victory, the swarm is knocked into a cocked straw hat. Elba, Elba, bleb on the sea. The white busts of marshals, admirals, generals, worming themselves into niches. Okay, so the bees argue in their black ball, a flying hedgehog all prickles. While the bees represent a great threat without organisation, they, they fight within themselves, which, as we'll see, leaves them vulnerable. But their potential for, for 
great violence is noticed by the speaker. As Heather Clark has written, the observer speaker exults in the swarm's threat of destruction as it morphs through the air, a flying hedgehog all prickles. It's a confidently weird image, isn't it? It, it certainly risks silliness, a flying hedgehog. I think with all of the excesses and the and the pom pom, it it does it really fits with the the absurdity even in the, in the horror that that is going on in this poem as well. All prickles, so there's no mind. There's no. It's not really an animal at all. It's just a, a nest of prickles. It's almost like a uh, an aggressive tumbleweed. The the man with grey hands stands under the honeycomb of their dream, the hive station where trains faithful to their steel arcs leave and arrive, and there is no end to the country. So a sinister turn here, a strong hint of the concentration camp, the trains, the unthinkable numbers of the Holocaust com being compared to the unthinkable numbers of the swarm. The man with grey hands, I think we're, we're meant to be thinking of beekeeping gloves, perhaps. Um, Napoleon does wear big grey gloves in that painting of him crossing the Alps. Um, so it could be an emperor's glove. Doesn't want to get his hands dirty, but I'm not entirely sure the man with grey hands is is Napoleon. I think I think they they're kept rather separate. Grey hands implies there's something really wrong with this man, something not natural, uh, something human that's missing. Under the honeycomb of their dream, it could literally be a beekeeper lifting a, a slide of bees from a hive to 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 look for honey, to collect the honey, or more figuratively, the the potential of bees, the promise of honey hived and exploited by man. Uh, Plath records in her journal watching smoke being applied to the hive as beekeepers searched for the queen. So it's it's easy uh, and rather uh, queasy to to see how the concentration camp imagery could could have taken root from from things like that. Faithful to their steel arcs, unswerving, fated. Later, the swarm is described as having a black, intractable mind. Its fate seems intractable also. It's literally on rails. Trains leaving and arriving, there is no end to the country. Like the cycle of mass slaughter at the death camps, um, they leave and arrive, there is no end to the country. The trains aren't taking their passengers somewhere uh, like a normal train would. It's just an endless sort of cycle of, of killing. Or looking at it with your Napoleon hat on, uh, with its pom-pom, this could be back to uh, you know his soldiers struggling back through the never-ending country of Russia. Pom-pom, they fall, dismembered to a tod of ivy. So much for the charioteers, the outriders, the grand army. A red tatter, Napoleon. Tod of ivy makes the, most of the uh, pom-pom the derivation we talked about earlier, as if this is a pom-pom literally shot to pieces, uh, you know, a big ball of feathers or something reduced to a tod or a scrap. There's another strange tableware connection. On St. Hel Helena, so the site of... Napoleon's second exile, he was provided with um, a ivy patterned service made by Wedgwood, which is now known as the Napoleon Ivy. So it could be a callback if, if there is a, a reference to the, the table where Josephine was gifted as a, as a as divorce present. I like the tableware cutlery motif for two reasons, even though it might be a push. Firstly, the idea of tableware helps, reinforces this sort of toy um, aspect toy soldiers it's almost like uh, Napoleon mapping out his campaign on tabletops and and secondly through the connection to the divorce with Josephine it encourages the idea that the, the swarm is untapped female power oppressed by man the man I think it fits well with Peter's Asia um, theory of the poem 
that it's the dream of a marriage that fails, that marshals its brilliant cutlery as they divorce, finally reduced to a, to a tot of ivy, which connects it more to the rest of the B sequence, which has a female speaker and an ongoing search for a queen. While there's debate about whether or if the swarm fits in with the sequence, there have been scholars who have gone against the conventional order. Uh, Mary Lynn Bro in 1980, for instance, said the natural ordering actually placed the swarm last. Viewed this way, wrote Bro, the bee poems describe a curve of maturation in their dramatic movement from youthful naivety and disillusionment in the beekeeper's daughter to vigorous exploration of the contradictions inherent in power. The arrival of the bee box, the bee meeting, stings and finally to a grasp of a new mode of power, wintering and the swarm. Now, most people wouldn't agree with that ordering, but Bro was writing a, a year before the collected poems came out in 1981. However, Bro's themes are picked up on by other writers. I think they would agree she was broadly right in the, uh, in the focus of the poems. Ashley, Ashley McFarland, for example, also sees a new and female-coded mode of power in the swarm. However, following Simone de Beauvoir's idea that women that know no powers of liberty consequently don't look for liberation, Macfarlane sees the swarm as incapable of effective revolt. So although it deserts, in Macfarlane's words, the life of maintenance imposed on them by the standing patriarch-privileged division of labour, it doesn't know what to do next, in short. At this point, the swarm is on the edge of transcendence, but when they hear the bullets, they interpret them as the voice of God and retreat. They are unaware, to go back to McFarlane's uh, quote, of the opposition that intends to pull them back down and restore them to their previous way of life. As Susan Van Dyne has put it, the bees have been duped into silent complicity with their own imprisonment. So much for the charioteers, the outriders, the grand army, a red tatter, Napoleon. Back to Napoleon's destroyed army being compared to the swarm, a red tatter, think of that glorious cape in the in the crossing of the Alps painting, or a tatter of it now floating on the wind. The last badge of victory, the swarm is knocked into a cocked hat, cocked straw hat, elba elba bleb on the sea, the white busts of marshals, admirals, generals, worming themselves into niches. Uh, John Gordon has written that the cocked straw hat into which they are knocked just before this denouement is presumably the same white straw Italian hat that is part of the beekeeping regalia of the bee meeting. Italian straw hats traditionally came from Leghorn, just off the coast of Elba. In his downfall, Plas Napoleon is deposited simultaneously into such a hat and into captivity on Elba. In a journal entry, Plath describes being handed one of these fashionable white straw Italian hats, and it had a, a black nylon veil to pull down over the face. Ellen Sorrow writes that badge and cocked suggest the cockade that symbolised a liberty Napoleon's assumption of the French throne perverted. Um, cockade is not quite a pom-pom, but a, a decorative badge also worn in hats, often patterned with a tricolour. Uh, so perhaps this is the last badge of victory symbolising Napoleon's doomed dream. Elba, Elba, bleb on the sea. Another repetition. Bleb really sounds like a sort of nonsense word built out of the noises of Elba, something that might mean blob or hiccup or something. But actually, bleb means bubble or blister. So it's almost like the entirety of the swarm has been confined or, or compressed down into a single sting. Um, and then how brilliant is this? The white busts of marshals, admirals, generals worming themselves into niches. So like busts in a museum, but also like grubs in the niches of their cells. Napoleon's retreat to Elba is seen in the cyclic terms of setting up a new hive, preparing on Elba for his return and his second attempt at an empire, 
which is doomed to fail once again at Waterloo. Where does Napoleon come into it? Because I know she she wrote that she wasn't she wasn't a historian. She was, she was asked about it in an interview, but she she said she was she was becoming really interested in Napoleon. Yeah, she she was she was reviewing books um, for a year or so at that point for the New Statesman, and the majority of the books she read and reviewed for them were children's books, which she loved doing because she got free books for her children. But uh, at at this point, she had just read the book Josephine, uh, who is Napoleon's wife, and she had written a review of it. And if you give me just a pair of queens, um, she had, I guess she had maybe read it in the springtime in April of 60. Her review um, came out in, I think, May of 62. I can double check that. Um, but so she, Napoleon was kind of a source for her. And this, this actually reminds me of something else um, as to why Napoleon in particular may have appeared in this poem. And that was because Napoleon is known for being, um, I'd be politically correct and say that he was vertically challenged. And at the time that Plath learned of Hughes's affair, she, you know, she went to Elizabeth Sigmunds, her, her friend, and she complained that Ted was a little man, that he had become a little man. And so I, I kind of see a connection there between Plath's calling Hughes a little man and in some ways comparing him to Napoleon um, and then having the two kind of be there um, in the poem, the form, but not, not, not very directly, but just sort of obliquely. I think I think that's particularly funny in in the case of Ted Hughes, who's T- Ted Huge as yeah becoming the small <laughs> yeah because in, in reality he was anything but small. I mean he was, mm. he was he was a very tall person and he was a huge figure in uh, in in the British poetry and even the world poetry scene. So yeah, I just I just like how she she can cut him down to size a little bit. Do we have any idea of how how he? Uh, reacted to poems like this or do, do, you, do we think he caught this i don't know i i, I don't know at all uh my my sense is that because he published them he was all right with them i mean he was concerned about he was concerned about the biographical uh, you know i don't think he particularly cared for it even though he understood it that it was um something that plath was particularly adept at yeah, and um, he like he kept Lesbos out of the UK edition of Ariel because he was afraid that the the, the, the people who were referred to in it would see it and and uh, be upset by it. And and he had kept other sort of personal poems out, uh, like the Jailer, I believe, wasn't published for for quite a long time. So I think he did what he could, and it, certainly in the days before, you know people were buying books from anywhere in the world and getting them a week later. But yeah, so I, uh, my, my guess is that he, in these poems, uh, he had recognized uh, the art in them and, and honored Plath in that way by, by including them. So here's the last section of The Swarm. How instructive this is, the dumb banded bodies walking the plank draped with Mother Francis upholstery into a new mausoleum, an ivory palace, a crotch pine. The man with grey hands smiles, the smile of a man of business, intensely practical. They are not hands at all, 
but asbestos receptacles. Pom, pom, they would have killed me. Stings big as drawing pins. It seems bees have a notion of honour, a black, intractable mind. Napoleon is pleased. He is pleased with everything. Oh, Europe, oh, ton of honey. So how instructive this is, sarcastic, waves of violence from which nothing is learned. It's just uh, kind of rinse and repeats. Napoleon losing masses of men in Russia, going back to Elba, setting up his new hive, charging again at the empire. The dumb banded bodies walking the plank draped in Mother Francis upholstery into a new mausoleum. The dumb banded bodies, obviously bees, but also sounding banded, manacled, shackled. Walking the plank draped with Mother Francis upholstery into a new mausoleum, uh, an ivory palace, a crotch pine. Imagine the bees going into a new hive draped in the tricolour French flag like Napoleon's retreating troops, only to be called upon once again when he returns from Elba. The hive they are going into isn't really a home at all. It's a place of death, a mausoleum, a palace of bone, the crotch of pine, presumably the black dead pine from earlier on in the poem. The man with grey hands smiles, the smile of a man of business intensely practical, but they are not hands at all, but asbestos receptacles. Pom pom, they would have killed me. Very ghoulish uh, Nazi overtones here. Ruthlessly practical, businesslike about handling death. Tools to hold toxic material, that's to our ears. The dangers of asbestos weren't widely known then. They were, they had been suggested, they had, they had been worked on in it for a while, but it certainly wasn't the shorthand for cancerous substance that it is today uh, in the public imagination. Plath may simply mean that the man is keep, keeping his hands clean, insulating or separating himself from what he is doing, and hence he speaks in the tones of, of self-preservation, the commonest excuse for slaughter. Well, they would have killed me. Stings big as drawing pins. It seems bees have a notion of honour, a black intractable mind. Napoleon is pleased, he is pleased with everything. Oh Europe, oh ton of honey. Notion of honour, a black intractable mind. Once a bee stings, its stinger breaks off and the bee dies. That might be the, the honour that Plath is talking about there. They're, they're honourable warriors in that they fight to the death. The drawing pins, that might refer to how it looks. I don't know if you've ever had a bee sting, but if you pulled one out, they do look quite a lot like drawing pins. There's the stinger and then there's the rest of... I guess the technical term would be the bee's arse, um, does have that kind of round, flat, drawing pin sort of hat look. Um, I don't think they're quite as big as drawing pins, but they, they feel it. Um, a black, intractable mind, Napoleon is pleased, he's pleased with everything. A Europe, oh, oh Europe, oh ton of honey. So once they are set on something, there is no stopping them. Um, they're on those, those rails, like from earlier. Napoleon, having learnt nothing, leaves Elba dreaming of his second empire, his ton of honey. I said at the beginning that this poem appears to have very little in common with Electra on Azalea Path at first glance, um, besides the bees, but Plath's concentration on an emperor controlling bees of course summons the ghost of her father, Otto, whose affinity with bees earned him the nickname uh, Bienenkonig, uh, King of the Bees. Uh, Electra on Azalea Path borrows the stilts of an old tragedy, and interestingly, the swarm also borrows from the classical world, as Holly Ranger has written. Plath borrows the extended war metaphor from Virgil's fourth Georgic, updating Virgil's references to Caesar to the bee emperor, Napoleon. I, I, I don't think it's definitely an Asia Webel poem, but I, I think there are, I think it's, there's definitely some representation in there. Um, but it's just, it's just one of, you know, dozens of ways we could all go about trying to 
to make sense of these things, which is one of the greatest things about interpreting poetry. I particularly enjoy reading Plath in a biographical fashion. For me, it, it sort of helps. It, it just sort of makes everything that she did that much more remarkable, that she could take yeah. these, these sort of lived experiences and translate them into uh, an art such as poetry. So that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast on The Swarm. Uh, I will be joined again tomorrow for an extended interview with Peter over on the uh, audio version of this podcast. So that's the version you'll find on Spotify, iTunes. I am uh, slowly adding my interviews uh, to the YouTube channel too, but I've got quite a lot of a backlog to get through. Um, so if you're not already subscribed on iTunes or whatever audio platform you get your podcasts, uh, look out for my interview with Peter. It's really interesting. We get to talk more about Asia, um, a little bit about uh, uh, Peter's history as a tour guide and, um, and his really unusual path to Plath. But that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you all next time. Happy reading.